This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us this week. I am very excited to welcome back Dr. Ashley Manuk, a family physician in Trenton, Ontario. Uh, Ashley, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be here again. So Ashley seems to have an interest in talking about sugar, heart disease, and diabetes. But that's not to say we don't have a very exciting article today on the same topic. Uh, Ashley, what did you choose to talk about today? I chose to talk about an article entitled Diabetes Treatments and Risk of Heart Failure, Cardiovascular Disease, and All-Cause Mortality, which is a big cohort study examining the risks of being on various diabetes treatments. Okay, and this article was published in the BMJ on June 17th, 2016. So you're welcome to look up the reference. The first author is Julia uh, Hippisley-Cox. So Ashley, we know you love sugar, heart disease, and diabetes. Why did you choose this article? When I came across this article and read the abstract, I, I found it very compelling for a few reasons. Uh, one of which being just the size of the study, the huge numbers of people, very diverse population, and uh, presumably making it uh, somewhat applicable to many different populations. And also the evaluation of multiple combinations of diabetes drugs. Okay, and I think you're going to tell us a bit more about the sophistication and subtleties of this very pragmatic trial. Take us through the design of the trial as briefly as you can. And I just want to point out to the listeners that we interchangeably use the word study and trial, um, although it's not entirely accurate in doing so. And as you rightly pointed out, Ashley, this is a cohort study, an observational study. So to actually use the terminology trial is not 100% correct. So forgive us listeners uh, in this regard. It is a very complicated statistical design, and Ashley has done a very good job, and she's going to take us through it as best uh, as we can in a simple and concise way. Go ahead, Ashley. Okay, so uh, just a tiny bit of background. The drugs that this trial was really looking to focus on was some of the newer agents, particularly gliptins, so DPP-4 inhibitors, and the glitazones, otherwise known as the TZDs. Um, and one of the reasons they focus on these is because in the previous literature, there's been some controversy regarding possible increased cardiovascular risk, particularly heart failure on these drugs. So they're trying to sort of elucidate some of that here. Okay, so this, so this study is an update in diabetes care to look at where we are at in reduction in cardiovascular risk with the newer agents, albeit the SGL2 inhibitors were not included in this study. Population for this trial, this was an open cohort, primary care patients in England, age 25 to 84, with type 2 diabetes. So this amounts to almost 470,000 patients. And yeah, it's a huge number. They were looked at between April 2007 and January 2015, so approximately eight years, which is much longer than, than most trials you'll ever see. The data was derived from a continually updated database that covers more than 1,200 general practices in England and two in Scotland. And this database includes demographic information, coded diagnoses, prescriptions, referrals, lab test results, clinical values. Um, and the data are linked at the patient level with hospital data as well as mortality records. So you have primary care records, hospital data from admissions, and then the mortality, you know, what's killing people. 
Of course, patients are are excluded if they have type 1 diabetes, and they were also excluded if they had been on a glitazone or a gliptin in the 12 months prior to the study entry. So since these were the main exposures of interest, the researchers were looking for new users of these drugs. Oh, interesting. As, as we said, they're trying to measure the effects of the newer agents in the current industry of diabetes care. Yes. So there's no intervention, right? This is an observational cohort study. Uh, but I'll try to explain how the researchers sort of compartmentalize the data here because it's quite complicated. So basically for each participant, the follow-up period was broken down into treatment periods based on exposure to diabetes drugs that are grouped into six classes, glitazones, gliptins, metformin, sulfonylureas, insulin, and other. So in total, there's 21 possible treatment categories corresponding to various combinations. So you have no treatment at all, and then you have every combination of monotherapy, dual therapy, and triple therapy, which makes 21 mutually exclusive exposure categories. Wow, 21. I'm already dizzy. Carry on. So if a patient changed to a different type of treatment during the study period, that was classified as a separate treatment period. So for example, say your patient was prescribed metformin alone for 12 months upon entry to the cohort. Then they're prescribed both the gliptin and metformin, for 24 months, and then they're switched to insulin alone for six months, that participant would be analyzed for three separate treatment periods. So the primary outcomes that they're looking for here are all-cause mortality, incident heart failure, or cardiovascular disease. And cardiovascular disease includes angina, MI, stroke, and TIA, but not peripheral vascular disease. So all of the major cardiovascular outcomes, albeit they didn't feel that peripheral vascular disease was one of those. Okay. Patients with an existing diagnosis of one of those outcomes of interest, so heart failure or cardiovascular disease, were excluded from the analysis of that particular outcome. Whew, a mouthful. Okay, Ashley, let's get to the meat. What's the bottom line, the takeaway message for this article? The bottom line of this article article is that in a diverse population of patients with type 2 diabetes, the use of glitazones or gliptins was generally associated with significantly decreased risks of heart failure, cardiovascular disease, and all-cause mortality compared with non-use of these drugs. And this was particularly true if these agents were used in combinations with other oral agents such as metformin. The reduced risk of all-cause mortality was was less apparent with increasing age and increasing hemoglobin A1C levels. And same with cardiac disease. So a major benefit to the new drugs, especially when in combination with previous drugs. So can you break down for us the, the hazard ratios that you've been discussing here and, and just sort of unpack the uh, granularity for us a little bit? Okay, so uh, I'll start by talking about the glitazones. So compared with non-use, um, the use of glitazones was significantly associated with a decreased risk of all three outcomes in the range of about 25% decreased risk of all three, of heart failure, cardiovascular disease, and all-cause mortality. Moving to the gliptins, so compared with non-use, the use of gliptins was significantly associated with decreased all-cause mortality and heart failure but not cardiovascular disease. Although I'll note that monotherapy with gliptins was associated with increased risk. And that is consistent with some of the trends they'd found in the comparative trials 
of Glipton's previously, correct? Yeah, and it, and the thing is, it would be pretty, I mean, I've never seen someone on monotherapy with a Glipton. You know, since these drugs are generally used as add-on therapy, the important question, at least for me, is whether their addition to metformin was associated with benefit or harm. So I'll note that metformin monotherapy was associated with significantly decreased risk of all three endpoints. So that's a 41% decreased risk of all-cause mortality, a 30% decreased risk of heart failure, and a 24% decreased risk of cardiovascular disease, which are quite impressive numbers. That is a remarkably impressive result. And I don't think I've ever seen prior studies. Yeah. Again, the, the numbers in the study, while they're very compelling, they're almost sound too good to be true. Yeah. Which is a little bit suspect. So compared with metformin monotherapy, dual treatment with metformin and aglitazone was associated with 25% reduction in heart failure and 40% reduction in cardiovascular disease and dual treatment with metformin and gliptins was associated with 13% reduced risk of cardiovascular disease and 20% decreased risk of all-cause mortality. Now remember, this is compared with use of metformin alone. So the takeaway here was that adding a gliptin or a glitazone to metformin was associated with benefit. A very interesting thing you'll note if you read this study is that the use of insulin was associated with a much higher risk of all these endpoints, whether it was used by itself or in combination with metformin or other drugs. So for example, the use of insulin alone was associated with a 250% increased risk of all-cause mortality, and the use of insulin along with metformin was associated with about 20% increased risk of all-cause mortality. And what about for sulfonylureas, Ashley? Was it the similar kind of trend? Uh, sulfonylureas were also associated with uh, increased risk generally across the board. But that didn't seem to be the case if it was in combination with metformin, is that right? Yeah, well, interesting. So in combination with metformin, sulfonylureas, all it did was lead to 10% increased risk of heart failure, and the rest of the things were non-significant. So the takeaway there was that adding sulfonylurea to metformin only increases risk. So it's interesting. The study suggests that in the agents that we know that cause hypoglycemia, that being sulfonylureas and insulin, whereas the other oral antihyperglycemics typically don't cause hypoglycemia, there appears to be a signal of increased risk in some of the endpoints, if not all of this, the endpoints that they're looking at. So maybe, I mean, I'm just thinking maybe that is suggestive because, you know, that might be the mechanism by which that, you know, is there. But I find it hard to believe that insulin can be that dangerous and sulfonylureas can be that dangerous to increase such a magnitude of risk in that way. Yeah, and certainly with respect to uh, insulin, the, the researchers in the study sounded like they were surprised by this and they thought that the increased risk with insulin was related to other patient factors and comorbidities rather than as a direct result of the treatment with insulin. Yeah, you're getting at this concept of what we call confounding bias in statistical research in that there are other things about the patients in the population that are accounting for, you know, in this case, the increased risk of death that is not exclusively due to the drug alone, and that it makes it difficult then to interpret the findings. Okay, so we've, we've had a lot of back and forth about the findings and then also some of the limitations of those findings. What do you think overall what were the strengths of this study? I mean, it got into the BMJ. There's got to be some positives about it. 
I think the strengths and weaknesses of the study are sort of flip sides of the same coin. All right, so in a real life sample, things are pretty messy. On the one hand, you have potential errors just in coding, people not coding endpoints properly, or a delay in coding that would have affected the perceived timing of the outcomes. Also, very importantly, we're analyzing prescribed drugs, not the drug actually being taken. So of course, this could have led to misclassification of a drug exposure. For example, if a patient's prescribed a drug they didn't actually take, or if they're not compliant, then we've totally misclassified their exposure. And of course, as we sort of also mentioned before, there's lots of confounding variables here. And although the hazard ratios were adjusted, we can't exclude the possibility of residual confounders, unmeasured patient characteristics that would have affected the selection of their drug treatment. Excellent points. So balance it out for us, yin and yang. A, a study that you should take these results as the bedrock now of our treatment decisions moving forward, or a study that you say it's an interesting question in a, in a pragmatic way, but I don't know what to do with these results. I think I'm leaning a bit toward the latter, although I have to say I was quite compelled by some of the results that were found, and, and some things might have been expected. But of course, there were a lot of results that seemed, as we said before, too good to be true. I would certainly take these findings with a large grain of salt. But at the same time, I do think it highlights the need for uh, further directed studies at particular therapies, because you know we're still left in this situation where our, our overall body of evidence for these drugs is somewhat conflicting. Ashley, who does this study apply to? Who is the typical patient in this study? Uh, again, because of this was such a diverse population with a large age range, it really applies to pretty much all of our patients we will see with type 2 diabetes. Uh, even though we don't know how to apply it. Great. Okay, let's move on to my article. It's, it is also about diabetes, but in a slightly different patient population. I chose to review, also from the British uh, Medical Journal, published August 15th, 2016, titled Hyperglycemia and Risk of Adverse Perinatal Outcomes, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. First author is Diane Farrar. So Ashley, I chose this study personally because I am at the age now where... All of our friends, or most of our friends, are married, and now we are into the baby stage, um, and it's a lot of fun. But as one of the physicians in my group of friends, although I am not an OBGYN or family physician, I get a ton of questions from my friends and family about diabetes uh, in pregnancy. Gestational diabetes and diabetes in general uh, is known to increase both the risk to the fetus and as well as the mom. So moms uh, more often will go to C-section and have other changes in their birth plans due to gestational diabetes and its uh, effects. We're also learning more and more that there are long-term effects to the mom and the baby, both that moms will are at risk to go on to develop diabetes and those complications, as well as that babies born to moms with gestational diabetes have a tendency to be larger and uh, have higher rates of obesity in life as well. Treatment appears to lower the risk, um, and there's lots of uh, evidence uh, around that. But you know, what's really interesting is that the threshold, the number, the result from an, uh, a mom's oral glucose tolerance test is actually unclear to identify individuals who are at risk for these long-term outcomes. So 
So for example, and the American College of uh, Obstetricians and, and Gynecologists also have decided that they're not going to use this threshold because they didn't think that it you know, accurately reflects overall risk for the patients that they're looking after. And then there's a whole idea about differences in populations that you're testing, that there's different genetic risks underlying it all that maybe thresholds need to be different for different populations. Kieran, I think one of the interesting aspects of the article you've chosen is that it speaks to these thresholds uh, that we tend to take for granted in primary care as being indicative of increased risk. So you meet a certain number and, and suddenly your risk increases. And your article seems to tell us something a little bit different. So actually, I wanted to say that you have to have a threshold at some point, right? You need to make a decision to say, well, when are we going to treat people or not? So that's that's not a criticism that we've set these thresholds. But the criticism comes from what do those thresholds that we've set predict? And as I mentioned, currently they predict a risk of obesity in the infant, but they don't predict potentially very important relative outcomes to the mom. For example, risk of C-section or other you know, important outcomes. To look at this uh, question, this group performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of all prospective cohort studies and they also looked at control arms of randomized control trials of women who were pregnant and had undergone an oral glucose tolerance test. Uh, and there are, that can be either a fasting, a one, a two, and a three-hour post-load glucose result. Oh, sorry, in, in history, up to and including October 2014. Now, they excluded women who had pre-existing diabetes or pre-existing gestational diabetes because those women would have received treatment already and that would muddy the waters about the effects of the oral glucose tolerance test results overall. So they just wanted a clean population of women who never had diabetes or gestational diabetes and then underwent an oral glucose test and then the results and the risks associated with that. So even at a previous pregnancy. Exactly. They were excluded if you were previously diabetic during a pregnancy. So studies had to provide data on at least one perinatal adverse outcome in a form that could be included in the meta-analysis. So like you had to have, you know, the number of women and the number of events that occurred in each glucose category from those studies. So these important perinatal adverse outcomes were maternally related, right? So induction of labor, cesarean section, need for instrumental delivery, or in pregnancy induced hypertension, kind of the preeclampsia, uh, eclampsia spectrum. Uh, and then fetal outcomes. Uh, so macrosomia, large for gestational age, preterm birth, birth injury trauma, neonatal hypoglycemia. So that is the composite of outcomes that are important both to the mom and the baby, and our current uh, thresholds don't include that. They just look at the risk of uh, having large babies. Then what they did is they created seven categories of glucose concentrations. They just sort of cut them up and said, all right, here's all the different results uh, of your glucose tests. Let's cut those up and look at the risks for each. Okay, Kieran, so tell me what uh, the main findings were here. They found a positive linear association that exists between the results of an oral glucose tolerance test and the resultant glucose concentration and the risk of adverse outcomes, the ones that I mentioned above. But there was no threshold along that spectrum, that linear spectrum, which you could say, bam, that's your point where your risk is significantly increased. So therefore, it confirms that our existing thresholds that we use are arbitrary. And that's not a secret. 
the International Association of Diabetes and Pregnancy Study Groups all acknowledge that this is an arbitrary value. They've set it just because we need to pick something, and we thought that a 1.75 odds ratio was appropriate increased risk overall. So what they found, 25 reports from 23 published studies, and then they also had two individual participant data cohorts that weren't published or that are not published. Those were all included to, to generate this you know, linear association that they found. Just about 200,000 women from all of these studies that they ended up uh, being able to include to, to generate these results. Ashley, I'm going to take you through four important perinatal outcomes and the, the associated risk as, it, as your glucose increases. So firstly, C-section, right? A maternally related risk. So for every one millimole per liter that your glucose uh, result increased, whether that was a fasting or, you know, your one, two or three hour post challenge, it was uh, associated with a 1.6 increased, uh, 1.6 odds ratio for fasting and a 1.4 odds ratio for the 50 gram oral glucose challenge test. Those are like the ones that we really use as screening in, uh, in Canada. For induction, it was 1.3 uh, odds ratio for every millimole per liter glucose increased risk for both the fasting and the 50 oral gram. Induction of labor. Exactly. Sorry. So those are the two maternal risks. Then risks to your fetus, so large for gestational age and macrosomia, a 2.1 odds ratio and a 1.3 odds ratio for fasting and 50 gram oral glucose ch challenge per one millimole per liter increase of glucose in the result. And lastly, for shoulder dystocia, you know, a 2.1 and a 1.1 for the fasting and 50 gram overall. So what's the takeaway from that? How do you summarize that? Basically, the fasting appeared to predict the, the risk to both the mom and the baby better than the 50 gram or even the 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test or challenge test, um, uh, but that all of those perinatal outcomes were, uh, were important and, and linearly associated with an increasing glucose concentration following the, the test. Looking at this, does this call at all for a change in threshold? Or, I mean, it, it almost says that the, any threshold we choose is by definition going to be arbitrary on a linear scale. The direct answer to your question is, I think we need to relook at our diagnostic thresholds for gestational diabetes. How we, we relook and define those is a question that I don't have the answer to with the existing evidence that we have. You can approach it in two ways. You could say, let's do a systematic review and meta-analysis of treatments uh, and reducing those important outcome risks and try to identify a threshold there in sort of a backwards approach. Or you could redefine your thresholds on an arbitrary basis because we have to pick something and we're going to say maybe 1.5 or maybe 2 is where we feel comfortable or uncomfortable with increasing risk. But I think that those results need to include the important maternal as well as uh, fetal risks from those numbers, which currently, as I said, remember, they do not. They're just for risk of obesity in the baby. So overall, a very well done study. This is in a very high quality meta-analysis. Meta it was done in a very rigorous way. They had three reviewers select articles, two of them extracted data and performed quality analysis, all the things that you really want to do to make your systematic review and meta-analysis credible. They passed. I thought the statistical analysis was done in an interesting way. 
which is a more pragmatic, today is a day of pragmatic trials and studies. So they didn't adjust for covariates, which you might normally do, like different aspects of a mom's, you know, past medical history, etc., that you would adjust for in looking at the risk related as it related to the glucose concentration. Because they said, you know what? We don't do that in real life. You do the test, you get the result, and you don't you don't adjust it in any way, you being the doctor or the patient. So why would we do that in this study? So let's let's just leave it to be a real life generalizable result. Very interesting. And then finally, you know, the studies that they did look at were low risk of bias overall as far as the studies were not biased themselves and who they selected. And the studies themselves compared to each other were relatively homogeneous. So all of these components of a meta-analysis that are important to make it a good study that the results you get are, are you know, credible, trust, trustworthy, uh, valid. Now, what's the counterbalance to it? Well, there's always bias as a major risk in systematic reviews. And the bias that this study had was something we called surveillance bias, which is, which boils down to the more you look for something, the more you find it, right? So these studies are all about finding gestational diabetes. And so they find it, obviously, because they're looking for it. And so maybe, you know, the, the, the risks that we find, you know, the, the, the linear associations per one millimole, millimole per liter are not as strong as they would be uh, in a less... Um, uh, detecting type of, of studies. Yeah, and then the only other thing, you know, that's uh, I think is a reflection about where research is conducted primarily and globally is that there none of these studies were looking for, you know, at sub-Saharan Africa uh, mothers uh, who resided there. So we don't know much about risk and potential thresholds uh, for other populations, specifically in, you know, some of the most socioeconomically challenged ones globally. It doesn't mean you can't infer those to those patients, but it just means we don't know specifically in those patients what the risks are. So, Kieran, given the findings of this study, would you say this uh, would modify how you might counsel a young pregnant woman on uh, diet or lifestyle during pregnancy? Yeah, this is not a this is not a study that says this is what we should do moving forward with regards to treatment. This is a study that raises, I think, very important questions and should have us relook and re-examine what our diagnostic thresholds are for gestational diabetes, and we need to include those. When we decide on those arbitrary thresholds, they should include risks of adverse maternal outcomes like C-section induction of labor. And that will allow me to more accurately counsel my patients on the risks of gestational diabetes, but not the benefits of the treatments so far. Good. I, yeah, I totally agree with that analysis. Okay, Ashley. So very interesting article, I think, both of them this week. Let's move on to, as you all know, my favorite part of the, of the week, uh, the good stuff segment. Ashley, what is catching your eyes in medical news this week? Okay, well, this was actually really cool. I was watching a TED Talk just the other day called How We're Harnessing Nature's Hidden Superpowers by a, a researcher named Oded Shozayev at uh, Hebrew University in Israel. Basically, this unique lab has succeeded in producing a transgenic tobacco plant that uh, includes all the five genes that produce human collagen. 
Uh, so uh, you, I'm not sure if you know, but at this point, it, when we use collagen for medical applications, we need to get that collagen from dead animals or cadavers. So it's essentially used and it has uh, risk of harboring disease and such. So this group of researchers has now basically cloned the genes for collagen into tobacco plants. And they have now tobacco plants that are growing uh, human collagen that they can extract and turn into various medical implants. Right. So you could call this vegan collagen, could you? I, I guess so. And it's the, the cool thing about <laughs> it, it's like it's pristine, right? It's unused. It's yeah. not from an animal that used it for you know 20 years and then died. So it's very cool. And I think as you you know pointed out the risks of uh, of pathogens that can be carried in in some of these things and very fascinating. Thank you Ashley. I was sent an article by my producer Emily Hughes. So credit goes to Emily for this week's good stuff uh, for me. And it is a fascinating anthropologic look at the use of Instagram. And so there is this woman, her name is Louise Delage. A uh, young French attractive woman and an ad agency used this woman to post thousands of uh, sorry I shouldn't say thousands 150 posts on Instagram and every one of those pictures showed her holding an alcoholic drink in her hand you know she's a young attractive woman she's in fun places she's having fun she's ha she's drinking she's enjoying herself 65,000 people started following her after only 150 posts but what the clever thing was is this ad agency and this whole marketing campaign was to raise awareness around alcoholism and alcohol abuse. And it's the, the French agency called Addict Aid, who, you know, is kind of like Mothers Against Drunk Driving in Canada about weight, raising awareness around alcohol abuse, especially in younger individuals. The, the video that you can go look at from the link on our, on our blog is quite powerful. It's, you know, it's, it's got great music. It's popping along. You see this young, attractive woman having fun with all these drinks. And then at the end, of course, there's the, the punchline that says alcohol abuse is prevalent and you don't even know it. And so it was, it was a really uh, powerful ad campaign for me. And I thank uh, Emily for sharing that with me. Uh, and I encourage you to check it out. So it's sort of like, now that we have your attention, here's what we want to tell you. Exactly. And thank you, Ashley. It's been a pleasure having you back on our show. Uh, we've talked about diabetes and sweet treats for two episodes now. Um, who knows what the third episode uh, will be when you come back and join us in the future. Maybe we'll switch gears. Who knows? Thank you, listeners, for tuning in this week. Uh, we look forward to joining you next week. and got lots of fun and exciting research in store. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.